we've prayed a lot, so I'm just going to quickly, Lord, I just pray now that you'd speak through me as I share the word. And I pray, Father, that everything that's gone on before would be preparation for the word that you want us to hear to go into our hearts. And that when that word hits our hearts, it would find fertile soil and that we'd produce a crop in keeping with the word a hundredfold in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that uh, as I share the word, it wouldn't be my word, my ideas, it would be your word, your thoughts. Uh, so I submit myself to you to, to let you speak through me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, hang five, hang five, team. Amos 9, 11 and 12 says this, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the Gentiles who called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. As I was looking at where God's taking us, God spoke to me about David's tabernacle, that this was a picture of what God wanted to establish in the church in the days following when David did it. And when David did it, it had fallen into ruin, and, and God spoke to Amos, the prophet, to raise it up again. But this is the thing that really struck me. Says the Lord who does this thing. This really struck, God spoke to me and said, I'm going to do this. You're not going to have to do anything. I'm going to do it. I'm going to walk this out, and, and you are just going to follow me step by step. So, This is what I felt God is doing. What is this that God is doing? He's bringing us back to our identity of being his house of prayer. So spontaneously, God is going to speak to people through the congregation, and they are going to feel a calling to to prayer like never before. This is what's going to happen in your lives. Uh, We're going to come back to our identity of being his worshipers, a bride infatuated with her groom. Today was a good example of what it looks like when a church is in love with their God. Uh, that you can't contain it. it just, you just want to keep worshiping, keep worshiping, keep worshiping. That's a great place to be. We're going to come back to our identity of being his sons and daughters while we continue to be fathers and mothers to the church. And, and this is such a great picture of what it takes to make a church family with the generations that God was saying, I'm doing something that is not just about you, but it's about the generations. And some of our waiters are struggling with the weight of what they're carrying we're going to come back to our identity of being part of his kingdom first. This is, uh, you know, where your whole life revolves around serving God first. What does God want me to do and everything else is secondary? That's Matthew 6.33. But that's part of our identity. It's not just a saying or a scripture. God is doing this as he moves us into the new season and the new church home. And the season ahead, listen carefully, our season ahead is going to be one of prayer, worship, and mission. You know, last week we looked at what it meant to have communion with God, and Temwani sang us that beautiful song, and, and she led us in communion, and, and there was a little picture of the, of the next generation ministering in the house of God. And so this week we are looking at what it means to be waiting on God and to wait on... Oops, oops, the princess has lost her load there. Okay, and, um, <clears throat> okay but... This is an opportunity for us to get a good practical glimpse of what it looks like when we wait on the Lord and then when we've waited on Him, He gives us something and we get the opportunity to share it with the body of Christ and minister to people all around. So waiters, waiters, are you ready? Waiters, are you ready? All right, please go serve the people with their blessing this morning, okay? 
Now, I know this is unhealthy, but it's holidays and it's cold, and there's no better friend in holidays and cold weather than chocolate, is there? Chocolate is your best friend when it's cold and it's holidays, I believe. So enjoy, be blessed. Aren't they beautiful? Aren't they precious? Not the chocolates, the kids. I'm going to get the adults all hopped up in sugar. I'm going to be out of control. Auntie Dolly brings her own secret stash. You're out of control. My favorite. That's okay. <laughs> I'm waiting. That's no, all right. I'll wait. <laughs> Thank you, Dolly. Okay, so um, look, I apologize if the slides are a little difficult to see. This is only going to be a problem for another three weeks or so. <laughs> Thank you. And. Um, uh, so in the new venue, we're going to have uh, screens that are going to show up better and et cetera, et cetera. So just hang in there, people. Just a few more weeks. Um, all right, are we done? We all served everyone? Uh, you guys were awesome. How about we give our waiters a big hand, shall we? Let's thank them. Thank you, little waiters. Woohoo! Okay. So while you're munching on your chocolate, listen up. There's something about David's tabernacle that God loved so much that he wanted to rebuild it in a new generation, in a generation who had lost their way. I ask the question, have we lost our way as a generation? Come on, think it through. Have we lost our way? You know, you, you don't have to look very far to, uh, to see that we are wandering very far from our foundations of the Judeo-Christian belief. We're turning our backs as a culture, we are turning our backs on Judeo-Christian belief. We're saying, look, no, that's not good. We're reinterpreting history through a whole new set of lenses. We're looking ahead to what the solutions are to our problems, and they are further away from our foundations than ever before. The solutions being posed. We have lost our way. Listen to what Isaiah, who prophesies to a generation who'd lost their way, listen to what he says in Isaiah 5.20. He says, woe to those who call evil good. And good, evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isn't that just a sign of the confusion that we live in today? You know, we're, now we have uh, so many things are subjective. If you wake up this morning and you feel like a G, then you won. You are one. What is a G? I don't know. It's a gender that's nonspecific, but it's kind of like out there. You know, and... Um, if you, whatever, you, whatever you feel, that's your reality. And this is a very, very dangerous place to be because when you work on feelings which are highly subjective and changeable, you have nothing stable and consistent to base your life upon. And this is where you can start to substitute all sorts of things and calling things that were good now are evil and things that were evil now are good. So we've been given a miraculous window of opportunity in the culture war just a few weeks ago. It was not expected that the government we got would be the government we got. 
And it, it is a little bit like the story of the boy with his finger in the dike. How many of you know that story? All right? Netherlands, they have dikes, which are these great big walls that stop the sea from coming in and taking over the land that they've reclaimed from the sea. So one day there was a little boy, who, and it's very dangerous. If there's, if there's a hole, if there's, a, if there's a, little, a little hole in the wall, the force of the water will push against, push against, push, and that little hole will suddenly become a big, 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 big hole, and then suddenly the wall will come down and push. Okay? So one day there was a little boy who was walking along the dike, and he saw a little hole, and he saw the water coming out. And he thought, what do I do? If I run and get help, the wall will collapse. So he went down and stuck his finger in the dike. And now he's holding back the water. But what shall he do? How long can he stay in position? And this is where we are. We've got our finger in the dike. We're holding back the water, the culture that is threatening to overwhelm us, and we are standing like watchmen on the walls, waiting on the Lord and pushing back and saying, God, unless you come and do something, if I pull this out and run and go, hey, everyone, too late. And so uh, in, we've been given a miraculous window of opportunity to, so where we don't necessarily have to hold back the tide right now because we've got watchmen in place on the walls that are going to do that for us for a little season. But we, as the church, must become much more strategic, much more disciplined in how we understand the responsibility that God has put on us in this generation. I've been in church a long time, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen prayer lines with prophets who have said, for such a time as this, for such a time as this. And they lay hands on you. You've been called for such a time as this. And most of us have no clue what such a time is. So it's like, that was awesome. I felt goosebumps. Wow. And on we go. Now, let me tell you what it means for such a time as this. When God says he calls you for a moment like this, it is a divine responsibility, a divine assignment. He has something for you to do that no other person in a generation will have. And if you don't do it, Mordecai says to his niece, Esther, who that word came to, when the entire nation of Israel was under threat of being wiped out, and he says, Esther, who knows that God put you here for such a time as this? And if you don't do it, God will have to find someone else, somewhere else to do it in your place. And what would be a terrible, terrible thing is if God came to us and spoke to us and said, I've got you here in this window of opportunity in this nation, in the culture, in the generation, and I'm calling you to take a stand. I'm asking you, I'm inviting you to come and pray. I'm doing this thing. I'm, I'm, my spirit is moving in this direction. I'm calling you. Listen to the voice of the spirit. Will you come and will you pray like never before? Will you wait on me like never before? Will you worship like never before? Will you take up your position so that I can put the responsibility on you and then I can show you great and mighty things that you don't even understand? That I can transform your act of obedience and service that seems a little bit like a little boy putting his finger in the hole. But if I 
if you will do that for me, I will transform it and bring about something that will save your nation, save your generation, something that will impact the generations to come. I don't know how you feel about the generations to come. I don't know if you even care about the generations to come. But our children, my children, have grown up in a system that is toxic. The system is designed to teach them what was good is now evil. And what was evil is now good. And my children sit in those classes and they get failed by their teachers because they dare to differ with their teacher. They dare to argue and say, that isn't true, miss. And they pay the price. I know this because I sit with them, trying to fathom how they could possibly be failing when I sit with them and help them with their assignments and we pour over it and then they go and fail. I'm like, my goodness, we're both failures. And I wrestle with this and I write an email to the teacher and I go, what's going on? I need a, I need a remark. I don't understand. Like, this is me. You failed. And they won't, and there's all sorts of political nonsense that goes on. Oh, this teacher's away, and this one, I oh, will remark. And they, they squeak him through with a, just a bare pass. And I go, something's fishy here. I don't trust the system. I know I didn't get 41 for English when I was at school. And so, I don't know where I am. We have a window of opportunity, a time like this, to do something And God is doing it for us. He's he's spontaneously calling us to do it. You've got to listen with the ears of the Spirit. You know, when Elijah goes, gets invited to go up on the mountain, there's an earthquake, there's a fire, there's a mighty wind, and none of them are God speaking directly. It's the whisper, the still small voice of God in the midst of all of that that gets Elijah's attention and that sets him apart for what God wants him to do. And that's where we are. We're in the middle of a storm of wind and fire and earthquake. Things are shaking all around us. If you're not aware of this, you need to open your eyes and read the paper. You need to understand the context we're living in. We're living on borrowed time. The system is broken. Mammon runs the economy and, it, and mammon runs it into the ground. It's designed to, to break. And only an elite few will benefit from the breakdown. The rest of us are drones. The rest of us are just there to prop up the elite, the super wealthy. That's the future people. And we, oh, we're just like scrabbling away, trying to get a job, trying to get ahead, try, working, working, working like mammon wants you to work, work, work. But God doesn't want you to work like that. He wants you off the hamster wheel and he wants you in a different kingdom, in a different mindset, with a different attitude, with a different anointing, with a different authority so that he can send you in there to bring transformation. And to bring change. He doesn't want you just to keep propagating a broken system. He's got something better. And so what should we as the church do while this window is open? Well, I believe God said it. Pray, worship, position strategically, and do do mission. Take the blessing wherever the door opens. But you can't, don't live in the place where you just roll up Grab a blessing and then look for your target. Mm, Oh, you look like a target. There you go. Have a blessing. Okay, that's mercenary. We're not mercenaries. We're soldiers. There is a difference. We don't need ministers who, who operate independently. 
We need an army of ministers and missionaries who walk in step with the Holy Spirit and are under the covering of God and have got a strategic plan and are deployed appropriately and are working out the call of God in a region, in an area. We've got to bring transformation regionally before we can think about bringing it on a city and a national level. I know I'm speaking big stuff. Some of you, this is like, what? Don't you understand? I've got a job. I've got a wife. I've got kids. I've got problems. I don't have time for your big talk. Well, people of God, if you don't hear this, we are going to see the wave crash over that wall and wash us away, just like every other civilization in history before us. And God's going to have to find someone else, another generation, to learn everything that we've learned, to be called up and strengthened, to carry everything that we can carry. He's got to get passed on to the next. Come on, guys. Can you not feel the urgency of the hour? Can you not feel like, man, young guys are looking at life and they're looking at life so differently to us. The, the, the 16, 17-year-old does not view their future the way we used to. When Vainant read that proverb about have a plan, have a strategy, our young people do not. There is no plan. There's no vision. They are dying for lack of vision. They're just existing. Just hoping it's all just going to work out somehow. Now, there are a few that God has handpicked to go, Actually, I do have a plan. Hallelujah. We need you. But en masse, generationally, big picture, we're living in a generation that has lost their way. And and it's up to people like us to stand and say, God, I'll do what you asked me to do. Even as weak and as pathetic as it feels, I'm not going to back off. I'm going to keep doing this for the sake of the next generation. Oh, well. I'm going to do it anyway. You know, when I look back at what King David did with this tabernacle of prayer and worship, I see this quote from a book, and I want to call it back to your remembrance. King David led a subversive singing movement, defying the tyranny of a 40-year rebellion against God. He called down the godless humanistic systems propagated by his predecessor. He sparked an unprecedented spiritual awakening and governmental reformation when he made day and night prayer and worship the driving force of the nation. I honestly believe this is God's answer for our generation. I honestly believe it. I, I, you, you can search high and low, what's the plan of God? He, whenever, whenever God calls his people to pray, he's about to move. He's about to do something. I believe this is what he wants. I believe he's causing us to be like fathers and mothers. I'm a youngster, man. I shouldn't be talking fathering and mothering. I'm too young. I should be building and doing my thing and making my mark. But I've been called to give it away, give it away, give it away, set them up, set them up, set them up, send them out, send them out. It's not about me. When I got saved, it was take up your cross and follow me. It's no longer me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That's a different message from a different generation. But it's my message. It's where I'm going to live. It's not about me. I don't care if I make it or break it. What I'm going to do is lay it down for the next generation. 
I want to be a father to the fatherless. I want to be a father to the next generation and raise them up. It's what Elijah did for Elisha. And because Elijah did that for Elisha, Elisha took it to the next level and defeated the enemies that Elijah couldn't defeat. I'm putting my confidence in the next generation to do double what I could do. And I'm laboring to ensure that that happens. What are you laboring for? Where's your hope? What's your strategy? What are you doing in terms of the great, the great words that God has spoken over our generation? Are you just ignoring it and getting on with your life and trying to, you know, build up your little house with your, me and my house and my kids and my car and my dog? Is that, is that it? It's going it's to fall short. Most of us are convinced that we, Australia, need a national revival. But I'm convinced of this, that we are it. The revival's come. It's in you. It's in me. The fruit of revival will be churches awakened and on fire, souls saved, miracles happening. But revival starts when the people of God get really serious about him. Every revival, historically, did not start with an outpouring of salvation. It started with an outcalling to get serious with God. The outcalling came, then the outpouring happened. When, when God's people get serious about him, they pray, they worship, they obey, they sacrifice, they give, they go, because revival has hit their hearts and they can do nothing else. We are coming back to being a kingdom community where God is at the center of our lives. We're going to get him back to the center of our lives, our church community. We're going to provide a place, a light on a hill that cannot be hidden, where people can come and find God any time of the week. We're going to pray and praise God and saturate the atmosphere of our lives and our families and our region with the glory of God. Listen, it's been saturated by a whole lot of other junk. Day after day, night after night. The junk has been poured out over people, over families, over homes. And then the man and the woman begin to echo it in moments of conflict. They start to echo the junk. They start to say the same junk that the devil wants them to say over each other. They start to speak out negative uh, death curses, slander, accusation. They're echoing the voice of the devil. And we have to do the opposite. We have to become a, an amplified voice over the region, and we've done it before. We can do it again. God is enlarging our territory, and he's positioning us for generations. So we are going to be a consistent voice in our community and in the generations that over and over and over again declares the greatness of God, declares the wisdom of God, declares the salvation power of God, declares the healing of God, the redemption of God, the hope that's in God. We're going to keep declaring it over and over and over again until it starts to happen in lives and streets and schools and businesses and every aspect of life. This is our only hope, I believe. The Bible says that it's not the wisdom of man that will do anything. It's the wisdom of God. And God takes foolish things to confound the wisdom of man. Foolish things like preaching. Foolish things like praying. Foolish things like worship. Ah, what's that going to do? That's not going to do anything. Oh, we want to bet. God put the power of life and death in my tongue. And when he comes into my mouth and he fills me with his spirit and I speak out what he wants me to speak, he watches over that word, careful to ensure that that word will be fulfilled and everything that he set for it will be accomplished. I'm not just speaking my own words. I'm speaking the word of the living God. So when I begin to pray and declare and worship, things begin to happen. The devil is confounded, confused, and driven away. And the light of God breaks through. And the devil works, does his work at night, and so God is calling for the night watchman. Get into position. Wake up. Begin praying. Begin worshiping. This is going to happen more and more. 
wherever I've gone in the last three years, God has given me prophetic words, words of knowledge as I pray for different people. And he's given me a specific hour as I pray over them. And I watch the response as I say 3 a.m. to someone. And I begin to weep. And they say, every morning I've been waking up at 3 a.m. and I don't know what to do. That's your hour. God's calling you to pray. Get on the walls. That's at the height of the battle. 3 a.m. is the darkest hour. It's the hour where the devil has just begun to whip his believers up into a frenzy and they begin to curse and they begin to send out demons to do their work. They begin to, to, to cast things over us, spells and incantations and judgments. And you think, oh, what's that about? Well, trust me, where I come from, that's very real. People drop dead because of that stuff. And so they send that out over the church, over marriages, over finances, over health. And we go, ooh, what just hit me? I don't know. You got hit in the middle of the night by the arrow of the enemy. It's time for the watchman, the night watchman to rise up and say, no more. We're going to cover the church. I'm going to wake up and pray. We're going to be without a doubt a people after God's own heart. So how do we do this? What on earth do we do? Well, the first thing we notice about David's tabernacle is that it was a place of God's presence and relational rest. You hear about it in Genesis 3.8, what that looks like. It's where they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You know, get that picture. You've labored all day, and you can come to a place where there's peace and rest. And the abiding presence of God. A place set apart to connect with Him. And you guys, I mentioned War Room, the movie War Room. There's, an, there's a, a call going out to the church. Guys, convert a room in your house to that kind of a place. Set apart a little nook in the house where you and God, just for you and God to meet. Where you can shut off the world and all of the gadgets and all of the noise. And just get into that closet. Wherever people have done that, God has moved dramatically. His presence comes in, and in his presence is the fullness of joy. In his presence is deliverance and power and majesty. Where his presence isn't, there's all the other rubbish. And so we're going to create in our church in the next few weeks, we're going to create a space, a sacred space where we come to. This is is where we walk with God in the cool of the evening together. This is where we worship and pray. And it's not overrun with busyness and hustle and bustle. It's set apart. Can you picture that? A hunger for that. Don't you desire a lifestyle where the hustle and bustle stops and you get to walk in the cool of the day, listening, resting, and comfortable companionship? That's what communion can be. What's the benefit of a lifestyle of communing with God like this? Psalm 1611, David says, You make known to me the path of life. How many of you? Don't have a path for your life. You don't know where your life's going. You don't know what's next. Well, in communion and in the presence of God, he makes it known to us. You don't have to be in the dark. You can be in the light. In your presence, this fullness of joy. How many of you have lost your passion, your desire, your hunger for God? You just got no joy. Life is blah, blah, dreary, busy, boring. Hey, get into the presence of God and your fullness of joy will be restored. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
You mean if I forsake my TV, my cold beer, my remote control, my hour of nothingness, if I put that aside and I go and meet with God, I could have an equal pleasure or greater? Hmm. Now there's a thought. I challenge you. I challenge you to find the pleasures of God. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you with me, you rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you're going through stuff, you're walking through stuff, walk into a set-apart space, a presence of God-filled environment, and fear leaves. Perfect love casts out all fear. Get a break from the intensity of the oppression of the enemy. Separate yourself unto God and find release. Find the comfort of God. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's so many Christians who walk through this life and they've never seen their God. Now that's got many layers of understanding. But have you seen your God? Because you were made in his image. We go on a place of communion. This David's tabernacle created a place where they were functioning as priests unto God. In Exodus 19.6, God actually says this, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Revelation 1.6, so at the beginning and then at the end, he says it again. And God has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Well, Jesus has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. So right at the beginning, God said, What I'm going to create out of you is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And right at the end, John writes about what Jesus accomplished. He said, God, Jesus has done this. He's made us kings and priests to God. Now, you don't learn how to be a kingdom of priests and a holy man or a holy woman. You don't learn this at home, alone. We learn this at church together with the saints. Church teaches us how to pray, how to worship, how to wait on God, how to listen to his word, how to understand his word. Church is, what it's, is the environment where we become equipped to be a kingdom of priests. You know, the number one desire of most women of God is that their husband or their future husband will be a man of God. They can handle anything else. He's not the brightest of sparks, but he's a great man of God. He's not the most affectionate bloke, but he's a man of God. He's not the most patient, he doesn't always listen to me, but... He's a man of God. He's not the richest guy I've ever married or could have married, but he's a man of God. Whenever there's a crisis and I want to fear, I go to the man of God and he prays and he brings peace to my life and he settles things down and I don't have to be afraid, says the woman of God. And the children of God who grow up in that house, they go, you know what, Dad, he's not the most perfect dude, but he's a man of God. And Dad, even though he's the funniest guy I know on the planet, he's also a man of God. And, you know, he's physically strong and can beat me up at a whim, but he doesn't because 
He's a man of God. You get what I'm saying? Everybody wants a kingdom of priests. Deep down inside, that's what we're all looking for. We come to church looking for a priest who can show us how to be a priest. We come looking for a man of God. What is this thing? What are you talking about? Help me understand so I can live this. Equip me, enable me. What is it I'm supposed to do for this God? Well, at the beginning, we were supposed to become a kingdom of priests. And at the end, he made it possible. So I would, given these two answers, as far as my, my mathematics works, one plus one equals no two. I think it's pretty basic. He wanted me to become a kingdom of priests. He made it possible for me to become a kingdom of priests. Therefore, I must be a kingdom of priests. Okay, well done, well done. You got there. So what exactly does it mean to function as priests unto God? One of the main functions of the priesthood is to intercede on behalf of God's people. Okay, let's break it down. One of the main functions of the church, if they're a kingdom of priests, is to pray or intercede for their families, for their leaders, for their communities, for their nation. Look, if God's doing this thing, and this thing is prayer and worship, because worship is essentially just prayers being sung. So like you're praying twice, which I think is very economical and highly efficient. And uh, I lost myself again. If God is doing this thing and making us a kingdom of priests, then... It's going to be easy. There's a grace on it. It might feel a little bit like lacking confidence and not sure of yourself, but the minute you step into it, there's a confidence and a boldness that comes on you to go, gee, I actually can do this. And more than just a function, it is an identity issue. Jesus said, my house will be known as a house of prayer for all nations. He didn't say it would be known as a gathering point for evangelism to happen. Now, everyone who likes to see people saved goes, yeah, what's supposed to happen is in the church, the evangelists get whipped up into a frenzy and get sent out to do the work of evangelism on the streets. In the church, we get trained to be a kingdom of priests. We get taught how to live for God and how to be the man or woman of God we were meant to be. We get taught about who we really are in God. Is it just a teaching function? Oh, no, 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 no. I could talk, 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 as I often do, blah, 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 and nothing at all would change in your life. No, no, no. The church has a dynamic that goes beyond talk. It's called the impartation of the Spirit of God. When I speak His Word and your spirit is hungry and goes, yeah, you come alive. Something gets activated in your life. So the church is not just about teaching. It's about impartation and activation. That's why there's a foundation of the apostolic and the prophetic because that's what they do. They impart and they activate. That's, in the, that's what I do. You don't know this. 
consciously perhaps, but let me tell you, unconsciously, you cannot leave this building the same way you came in. A, a seed of life has gone into you. You're different. Now, when will that seed come to life? Well, I pray it'll be activated, if not this week, next week or next month. At some point, it's going to come alive in you. And everything that we were telling you suddenly goes, you know, have you seen those, those movies where the guy like works on the computer and it's like all green code, you know, like, and then all of a sudden it goes, and it falls into order. Have you seen that? Makes sense. That is activation. That's what happens after sitting under the word of God and sitting under the anointing. There comes a moment where you step into it and suddenly what was green, whatever, becomes, I get it. I'm alive for the first time. I understand. How many of you have had that experience? Raise your hand and shout hallelujah. Thank you. So, I want to tell you that this kingdom of priests thing is so important. I, I, I remember I, I traveled to a different place. I'm going to protect the innocent here. And I stayed with a family, and I was sharing at a conference. And I shared about Lot, who was the elder of Sodom. And the angel came and warned Lot that God was going to destroy the city of Sodom. And so Lot went home, and the angel said, you better tell your family to get out of here because they're going to die if they don't. So Lot goes home, and he tells his sons-in-law, he says, come, guys, the angels come, warned us, we've got to get out. And he wants to pray. He wants to lead them in prayer. And the sons scoff at him. They mock him. They laugh and go, what, fat Lot, pray, <laughs> as if, cheers, buddy, we're out of here. And I remember sharing this at the conference saying, guys, Lot left it too late in his life to become the priest that God made him to be. It was too late when he had to stand up and pray with authority. He had none. And it was too, he lost his sons-in-law. And you can read about what happens after that. His daughters have to sleep with him to make new lineage. It's messed. It's a chamorz. It's a bad mess. And, and I shared this, and, and, and I remember the, the man of the home was like sort of, you know, you know, you know what I mean? You know, one of those Christians? Yeah. But he came home that, that night, and he said, can we say grace? And he stood up, and he began to pray. Ooh. His wife, I saw her face light up like I've never seen her face light up. She fell in love with this man. She was like, oh, who is this incredible hunk? As he was praying. And his kids looked at him like, what is that? As they looked at their dad. And I believe, I don't know what happened after that, but I believe that was a turning point for that family as the man stepped up into being a kingdom of priests before it was too late. Take that on board. So what drives the Christian to prayer? Normally, it's desperation and crisis. You can see this. Wherever the church is flourishing and thriving, it's been done so by a massive prayer movement in the people. Look at China. Is it comfortable and convenient to be a Christian in China 
would you say? No. It's thriving in Africa. Any of you know how life in deepest, darkest Africa goes? Rwanda, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, uh, where else? All the hotspots, Congo, etc. How many of you know life in Africa is a dream? No, no, it's a crisis. Indonesia, where God is moving incredibly, huge persecution by the Muslim community against Christians. So it would appear that wherever the church prays, God moves amazingly. Did you know that the greatest growth in the church around the world is in China, Africa, and Asia, where they're under persecution? Did you know that? The fastest growing church at the moment is in Iraq. Not, not, not in terms of, of size, but in terms of the rate of growth, the amount of people who are getting saved and brought into the church, it is growing at an exponential rate in Iraq. Now, there's a holiday destination. So wherever there's crisis, desperation, the people of God begin to pray, God begins to move. And let me tell you, the prayer meetings of the Chinese and the Africans and the Indonesians, (laughs) oh my goodness, you want to go to one of those prayer meetings. I tell you, when I go to Africa and I say, let's pray, I can't hear myself as they begin to pray. They know how to pray. When you see the kids of Indonesia, little eight, six, eight, seven, nine, whatever, running to the front to pray and intercede, like incredible on fire. I mean, it's different because there's a, a different driving force. So I ask, what will it take for the church in the West or the church in Australia to become a kingdom of priests? And I want to put a challenge to you that we can become a house of prayer for all nations through our commitment, our sacrifice, and our discipline. We actually can do this without crisis. We don't need crisis. We don't need desperation. We need to feel it, but we don't need it to be actually the reality that we live with. Because we, at the same time, we'll be praying for peace on the land so that the gospel can go out unhindered. We've got a window of opportunity. We've got to get desperate in it for God to maximize it. And we do that through our commitment, our sacrifice, and our discipline. God's doing this thing, therefore, he may allow personal crises. He may withdraw his presence from you for a season in order to create a desperation in you. Maybe you're sitting here today and you go, God, which God? Where is he? I don't know. I haven't seen him for a long time. That's his design so that you'd get desperate. I don't want to live without him. I want to draw near to him. And I'm seeing a spontaneous hunger for prayer and worship bursting out in OCP. And I'm sure we'll see it manifest in new ways in the next season. Uh, When I shared last week, Keith Miller sent me this message. Thank you, Keith. The man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. I'm encouraged by that. Because I've spent 20 years praying for revival in Australia, hungry to see Aussies getting saved. Seems like the immigrants get saved a lot easier. I'm crying out for the Aussies. And so what can I do? Well, I'm a, king, I'm a priest. You know, look, you get what I'm saying. A biblical one, not one of those other religious ones. I'm a priest who can pray. 
And I can, I can say, God, come, do something, and my prayers can count to leading Aussies to Christ. Jesus commissioned me and called me to be his disciple. I want to do my part. As a church leader, this is the best offering I can think of making towards the revival, the transformation of Australia and the nations, and that is to build a little David's tabernacle. That's what I do. I build things for the house of God, for the church. I'm going to build, to the best of my ability, I'm going to build a little David's tabernacle. And I pray it's going to last for generations. Can we watch that video now, Dave? I want to show you a video of uh, where in Wales they have built a little bit of a David's tabernacle and what God's doing in this place. We're the, we're the happening location. You've got to come here and check it out. You know, come to the drive through church and get your little package and on you go. Awesome. It is a sickening culture that I struggled with for years. This is not a business. This is not a, a corporation that requires a marketing department. This is the body of Christ. Jesus can do his own marketing. My job is to be a priest unto God. And, and so there are times I've fallen into it for which I repent and say, God, forgive me. As I've tried to compete with the rest of the world. But I'm telling you where we're going if we remain hidden for two generations. So be it. As long as we're doing what God's asked us to do, we become nothing in the eyes of the world, scum of the earth, according to what Paul writes, so that he can be glorified. I want a story of God bringing people to his house to meet with him in his presence and be transformed by him, not by me or any other, you know, really hoop, uh, cool, hip, trendy minister. If there are any of you Wearing your skinny jeans and your cool shirts, your long T-shirts with your customized holes in them and all that other rubbish. Okay, if there are you guys around, God bless you. You can keep wearing that. But like, we're not going to rely on your coolness to get what God wants to do here. And so, I don't know why I said that, but I needed to. How are you guys going? I can keep going a little bit, but we're holidays. Kids, how are you doing? They're quiet. God's doing something. Please, can I finish this message? It's been going on for three weeks. So I just need to finish it now. Second um, Corinthians three sixteen to eighteen from the message says this: Whenever, whenever though they turn to face God as Moses did, God suddenly removes the veil. That and there they are, face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living personal presence and not a piece of chiseled stone. Pause. We all regularly need a fresh revelation of God's reality. We all need to be freed from the traps of religion over and over and over again. Our idols are a little more subtle, but they're just as real as the idols of the people of Israel. Anything that takes the place of God as our number one heart's desire and allegiance is an idol. 
When Jesus arrives on the scene, he proceeds to put a flamethrower to idol after idol after idol. The rich man, you want to follow me? Give it all away, rich man. Make yourself poor, then come follow me. And the rich man leaves sad. The, the, the young men who come to him and say, we want to follow you. And he says, well, you want to follow me? Unless you're prepared to hate your mother and hate your father and hate your brother and hate your sister, you've got no part in me. Oh, but I've got to bury my dad. He's just done. Let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. What is Jesus doing? He's making this hard. And then he's got real good Jews who come and say, oh, what must we do? He says, you, unless you're willing to drink my blood and eat my flesh, vampires. You have no part in me. What is he doing? He's putting a flamethrower to the idols of the day, to the religion of the day. All he's doing is just saying, ah, yeah, anything that comes between you and me walking together has got to go. This is not for the faint-hearted. Being a Christian is the hardest thing you can do with your life. When they say, you just need your religion as a crutch, you say, actually, you're incorrect. I need two crutches, a wheelchair, and a nurse. It is incredibly hard. It is supernatural. You try and deny yourself and take up your cross and follow your Lord. You try that in your strength. You try and turn the other cheek. You try and bless when someone curses. You try and forgive and love those who are cursing and abusing you. You try that. You're a hero if you're a Christian. You are living in the supernatural power of God if you're able to maintain that kind of a walk in this kind of an age. You have my respect. I salute you. You're incredible. That's where you've got to make a mind shift and say, well, whatever separates me from God has got to go. So we're just going to keep going down that road. Okay, keep going. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18, Harry's on. And when God is personally present as a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We're free of it, all of us, nothing between us and God. Our face is shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured, much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually become brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. I'm telling you, if you're willing to go on this journey with us, if you're willing to move into this next season of extended prayer and worship and taking up a place as a watchman on the walls, if you're prepared to do that and hang out with God, you are going to change. You're going to become more like the God you hang out with. Let me tell you, whoever you hang out with at the moment, you're more like them than you are like anything else. If you hang out with rough crowd, you're rough. If you hang out with people who are, who are cussers and moaners and negative, you're a cussing, moaning, negative one yourself. You will inevitable. You'll become like the company you keep. Inevitable. And so we were calling, I mean, what? on earth do we achieve by one Sunday in a fortnight or a month? How can you cl classify yourself as being part of something that's significant and important if like, that's your engagement? We've got to find a way to engage more and more in this busy, hectic life of ours. We've got to find a way to re-engage our hearts and our lives and our time to become more like Him. If you want to be like Jesus, you have to hang out with Him more and more. Second Chronicles 7, 14 to 16, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. 
pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Do we need that or what? Now my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. You know, quite often I've heard that scripture quoted, but only half of it. If you want to see a revival and see God move, you get the first half. My people, call by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face. Then I will forgive their sin and hear from heaven and heal their land. Okay, that's the half we hear. But what about the half we haven't heard very often? Then God's going to create a place where his ears are open and he's attentive to the prayers and he makes that kind of place his home. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for some, you know, big explosion of God's and everything, like magic button. I'm not looking for God's atom bomb. I'm looking for God's resting place. I want to be where God is. I'm not looking for a quick fix. I'm looking for a lifestyle. How often have we heard the scripture, and what if God wanted to choose and sanctify a house where he could hang out? What if God wanted to create a people and a place in a generation that has forgotten about the sanctity of a holy place and forgotten about the church being a people of prayer and power? What would such a place and such a people look like? In Matthew 5, 14, he said, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. We are building a habitation for a visitation. Did you get that? We, we, we are building that. Our prayer and our worship is going to create an environment where God wants to come and hang out. I believe that. That's the next season for us. So we're going to conclude with the final video from Wales. I want to ask you to direct your attention to that screen and then we'll close the service. Thank you. A little while ago, we had a couple staying here at Felder Brennan. They were due to leave and... And he was saying to me, I've got a great problem. I've lost my hearing aids. But I don't know what to do because I cannot hear a word unless I'm wearing them. So my wife and I sit there quietly trying not to grin and say, well, have you looked everywhere downstairs? Yes. Have you looked right through the bedroom? Yeah, we dismantled the bed. We looked under it. We looked over it. We've looked in drawers. We've looked everywhere. There's no sign of them but you can't hear anything at all without them. No, I don't know how we're going to manage. And then I said, is it really very difficult for you if you haven't got your hearing aids? Yeah, I've been telling you I can't hear anything at all. And my wife says, so how exactly are you hearing us at the moment? And he looked and he went, I can hear. I would call that gentleman the master of the understatement. <laughs> Don't let your excitement do anything too crazy. <laughs> um, so British, <laughs> stiff upper lip. Anyway, um, I don't think we'll do the same. Should God heal us dramatically, I may be a slightly bit more excited, uh, I anticipate.
Um, anyway, so um, we've had an incredible season in this building. This is ours. We built it from the ground up. And uh, it's been our home for eight years or so. There are scriptures buried under this, under this concrete pad. Uh, we've stood on here before it's been erected and we've said what God would do in this place. We've walked around in broad daylight with flags and oil. <laughs> Craziest church in the world, except where God moves. Um, but anyway, and um, we walked around with our flags and our shofars and our songs. And, and then all that happened happened as the school came in. And, you know, guys, every week the school is hearing the gospel, preaching to hundreds and hundreds of kids. And it wouldn't have happened if we weren't here. A Muslim community wanted to buy this property. And God engineered it that the Baptist school did. I think that's a win for the kingdom. And um, I'm so glad we don't have a mosque here. I'm just so glad that we don't. Praise God. We stood with our finger in the wall and said no. And God did it. But, you know, the season's changed. And we're going to a new place. And it's... That video of the grace outpouring, I believe, is what God is using to speak to us and to stir us to faith for the kind of things that he can do. I hope you make it with us. I hope you're part of that journey going forward. And so I bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I bless you with the fellowship of his Holy Spirit and the love of the Father, the grace that comes through a walking relationship with Jesus. May this week be a week full of opportunity like we sang and declared. A week where you have opportunities like never before to see the kingdom of God break out before you. May you be blessed in every way. Amen. Love you.